What does it take to go from a, being a couch potato to one of the most accomplished ultramarathoners you'll ever meet? Well, you're going to find out on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first, because you know those things are your foundation, and where we break down the propaganda, the mythology, and sometimes the flat-out lies you've been told about what it takes to run and walk and hike and play and do yoga and CrossFit and Dance Dance Revolution and eSIM racing and Ninja Warrior courses and powerlifting, anything you can think of really and to do it enjoyably and effectively and efficiently and did i say enjoyably trick question no i did because uh, if you're not having fun you're gonna not keep doing it so find a way to do something that you enjoy and keep going and have a good time i'm stephen sashin your host for the movement movement podcast from zerochoose.com and we call it the movement movement if you don't know because we're creating a movement and that involves you tell you how in a second it's really easy about natural movement having your body do what it's made to do without getting in the way with things that sound like they may be good but probably aren't so much uh so the way you become part of what we're doing is really simple go check out www.jointhemovementmovement.com you don't need to do anything to join. There's no secret handshake. There's no money involved. That's just where you can find all of our previous episodes, all the ways you can engage with us on social media, for example, all the, uh, what else, what else, what else? Um, well, oh, and all the things you can do to help spread the word, like thumbs up, bell icon on YouTube, leave reviews, give us a five-star rating wherever you can. You know the drill. If you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. All right, let us jump in. Uh, Randy Kreil, do me a favor. Tell people who you are and what you're doing here. And first of all, welcome but then tell people who you are and what you're doing here thank you it is great to finally get together we've had a, a couple of uh, false starts um i am just a dude who was looking for an affordable hobby i had been um uh, down with cancer back in 04 was overweight i was a full-time parent to three beautiful young daughters in fall of 04 about a year and a half into post account executive sales career. I was a full-time parent at that point. I found out that I had thyroid cancer and had a couple of surgeries, two surgeries. I took half the thyroid out one time, found out it was cancer and, and took the other one out. So I found myself going several nights without sleep, very scared after I figured out what, how serious it was. And at one point I found myself trying to explain cancer to our two-year-old daughter. I had a drip tube that was really a pretty gory thing. And um, it was just a tough time with a lot of fear. So I, I, I dug into trying to figure out everything that I could do to minimize the risk of it ever being in that situation again. And ultimately it led me to uh, read Born to Run in early 2010. And by late 2010, I decided to kind of go all in on this, what I now think of as um, uh, my experiments in truth, sort of just, I adopted the Scott Jurek 100% plant-based diet. I tried to eat like the Tara Umara, um, who are mostly plant-based organic whole, whole foods people, the, the, the people who were on the primitive diet, uh, the rare Mary diet. So, and I also, so in addition to that, wanted to really adopt kind of that cooperative mindset to where I'm going to try to dive into this, learn everything I can, share it all for free. And that kind of became sort of like volunteer work. If I can convince other people to do this, I could have a real impact on at least a few lives. And um, so similar mission to yours. And it's yeah. certainly yeah. you're trying to change the world. And um, I've been trying to sort of do something similar. And it's the results have been phenomenal. Uh, it just still blows my mind how far it's gone and, you know, since December of 2010. Um, I've now done over, I've done 25 official 100 mile runs, um, probably close to 100 ultra marathons, although 80 some official. And at 60, when I come out of the shower and look in the mirror, I like what I see. And <laughs> 36, I couldn't say that. So 60 <laughs> years old now, we're about the same age. Yep. Life has become phenomenal. But what I have come to understand is that everything I do to become a better runner has helped me become a healthier, happier person just in general. And mm -hmm. shoes has definitely played a role in that. So uh, kudos to you and your staff. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, pass on my gratitude to uh, your, seems like your staff is kind of your family there. I've been impressed with 
everyone I've dealt with at Zero Shoes. So. Oh, that's really sweet. Well, so I want to talk about the transition from where you were to running, because this is a, I mean, you know, just making a transition to running at all is one thing. Transition to running marathons and ultra marathons, that's a whole other game. But um, are you, can we dive into the cancer thing for a moment? Absolutely. Yes. And, and let me tell you why I want to do it. This is the first time I'm actually talking about this publicly. So this will be really interesting. I, as of last week, uh, am, as far as I can tell, I'm going to find out for sure this coming Monday. But as far as I know, as of last week, I am now done with what I refer to as the best cancer ever. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I got diagnosed at the end of December. And by the middle of February, I was all done. I had, I'm not trying to say that I'm special, but I had a rare form of uh, eye cancer. I had cancer in my retina. Really? Discovered it almost accidentally. And then, um, in fact, like, here's my favorite part. So I go to my retinal specialist. I didn't know. They were watching something in my in my retina, a little freckle. And I didn't know they were watching it to see if it was cancerous. I had no idea. I just thought, hey, we're just watching this thing. And um, so then I go in in December, and the physician's assistant is checking me in. And he says, so, you know, is this your pharmacy? Are these medications you're taking? Is this your address? And do you have any questions about your tumor? I said, I'm sorry, my what? <laughs> And he goes, wow. uh, be right back. <laughs> he runs out the room. It might so, be better you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that was not the way that he was supposed to break it to me. But, the, but I, well, I call it the best cancer ever for two reasons. One is we caught it really early. The treatment was relatively straightforward. I didn't have chemo. I didn't. The radiation I had, they sewed a radioactive disc to my eyeball for a few days. And then wow. they removed that. And by the way, if you ever um, feel a little nauseated, but you can't kind of you get yourself to throwing up, but you feel like that would be helpful, just do a search online for plaque brachytherapy surgery video. And if that don't make you puke, nothing will. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted them to record my surgery and they said they did, but then they, then somehow something didn't, didn't work. And I'm kind of glad because if I was watching that on my own eyeball, Oh my, but the other yeah. reason, I, the other reason I call it best cancer ever is that for whatever reason, and I'm not going to suggest that my experience should be the experience for anybody else, but I'm curious if what I'm about to describe was a part of your experience during the time, and this is a, this was a very aggressive kind of cancer. Like if it starts growing, you know, um, it basically grows slowly, 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 and wham. And once it starts doing that, it will definitely metastasize, go straight to your liver, and there's nothing they can do, and you got about a year. So while I was waiting to find out what, uh, well, basically what type I had and what the likelihood of metastasis was, um, from the moment they said, hey, this, this is cancer and this is a big deal, we need to treat it, till the moment it was, well, actually through now, I have been a hundred times a day overwhelmed with a feeling of preciousness and gratitude and appreciation and yes. enjoyment. And I mean, I feel like I'm like, almost like I'm a bit of an alien, like I'm walking around going, oh, wow, look at that. Or I yeah. might be leaving this planet that I've been vacationing on and going, I'm going to miss that. And while I know people who've had chemo and radiation, et cetera, and have children, which we don't have, have many different experiences. Everyone I've talked to, that feeling of like, oh, I know I could die, creates something that when you're not having the unpleasant part is unbearably delightful. That's been yeah. mine. Did you have anything like that? Yeah, I, I guess I ended up becoming one of the stories where the cancer, or you ended up kind of looking at it as a gift. And first of all, I felt best things ever happened. No, dude, best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, yeah, one of them. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I, I don't think I would have ended up discovering all these things that I've learned over the last 13 years or whatever, uh, had it not been for that scare. Yeah. Um, and then taking that and flipping it into the total opposite has just been incredible. Quite a ride. I'm curious, though, just you know, diving in just for the fun of it. And I'll tell you why, because I've got a bit of a mission, an, an additional mission. Even while you're dealing with the treatment, were you having any of those like, holy crap, life is really amazing moments? Um, Maybe not. It's OK. Yeah, I don't care. I would say some, but I was sort of overwhelmed with fear at the time. If I could go back and do it over again at this age, probably would have been different. Well, um, if I, if I, and, and I know I'm diving in, so feel free to no, stop no, me at any point, but what can you, do you remember what specifically you were afraid of? 
well, that it would spread and take my life. But I was mostly afraid of not being there for my kids in the future. Yeah. And you no, know, my wife, taking care of my wife, all of it, uh, just losing everything. Yeah. That was the fear. Um, I went, when I when they first told me about this, I had this giant goiter that I hadn't even noticed. And they thought it was benign. And they sent me straight to get it um, MRI or whatever done to it, an X-ray or whatever. Well, before the biopsy, oh. they had a picture of it, and my oh, yeah, breathing, yeah. my breathing tube did one of these. And once I could visually see how bad it affected my breathing tube, my mind just sort of went yeah. wacko. I went like three nights without sleep; I'd never done that before, and just kind of got into a deep fear stage that lasted for quite some time. Mm. Uh, so that was kind of why I, one of the reasons I started the YouTube channel was to hopefully get through to a lot of younger people that the diet is, is one of the key things to preventing and healing cancer and all, virtually any chronic disease. Yeah. And we will definitely, we'll definitely dive into that. FYI. Yeah, um, yeah. The, you know, the other, the other thing, again, again, this is just my thing um, is how do I want to put this when people, when I would tell people and I didn't tell very many people, but I had to tell like one person a day or my head was going to explode because I'm not good at keeping secrets. So yeah. I had to do that. But um, if they said, I'm sorry, it's like, oh, no, 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 stop, cut that out. Because I'm not. I mean, you know, this I I was really completely fine with any possible outcome. Now, I'll confess this may be because I'm weird and it may be because in 1989 I was in or I was in China in Beijing and got caught up in the Tiananmen Square massacre and had guys pointing machine guns at my head trying to figure out who was going to pull the trigger. And the way that affected me, which was basically I had never been so lucid and calm in my entire life. And my only my predominant thought was in Buddhism and I wasn't I can't say that I was a Buddhist, but in Buddhism, they say your next rebirth determines your or sorry, your last thought determines your next rebirth. And if that's yeah. true, all I could think of is I want to know that I'm dying because I want to see if I can get a good one. <laughs> and, um, well, that's just what was popping up in my head for whatever reason. So, you know, I kept having to say to people, I'm not sorry. So, you know, uh, that's not don't say that. Or I would say to people, I'm going to tell you something. But whatever your natural response is going to be, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and let's try something different. See what happens if you don't do the knee jerk one. And same thing with when, when, Sorry for a, a last thing. When they would say, well, you know, we, you can beat this. You know, you can fight this. Like, I'm not at war with anything. I'm not trying yeah. to, you know. That's exactly right. You, yeah. And, you don't and, want to fight it. My take on it is you, you don't focus on the disease at all and you put all the focus on a positive wellness goal or whatever your positive goal is you focus on that kind of forget about the cancer try to create the right conditions in your body to heal, heal the cancer and get whatever treatments need to be done as well yeah and, um, and even with that when people would say to me things about you know think positively like have good thoughts about this i would go no no i don't think you understand I'm really okay no matter what happens. Now that said, we don't have kids, as I mentioned, but the only thing that worried me, and Lena pointed this out to someone, she goes, you know, I'm like literally going into surgery and she's scheduling an interview we have with somebody. And she says, just so you know, he's more concerned about this interview and making sure that our new shoes come in okay and on time than he is about dying. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that relaxed attitude probably helped you heal. It may be, I don't know. Either, yeah, yeah. either way, I think, I guess I'll end this little chapter with just what was interesting to me was seeing how um, habitually people respond to this and how some of those responses seem so not helpful. You know, it was it was just fascinating. I mean, my, yeah. Lena's nephew had an inoperable brain tumor and um, died of that. And and I uh, and, and partly I guess this is partly from you know being a stand up comic. This is what happens. Like I said to him early on. Uh, you know, the most difficult part is going to be people going, oh, no, I'm so sorry. And just looking at you with puppy dog eyes. And if you get tired of that, call me because, you know, <laughs> I love you dearly. But we've had 120 billion people on the planet and they've all died so far of something. We're, yeah. None of us are going to escape that. So I said, so let's practice. What do you want for lunch? And he says, dude, I got a brain tumor. I said, I know you got a brain tumor. What do you want for lunch? And he's like, oh, all you can eat sushi. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. at, one point, the, 
at one point the family's being very morose. And I, and I just said, you know, the, there's a, an upside to you having a brain tumor. He said, what's that? I said, well, it's not affecting any part of your body you've ever used. <laughs> and, you know, and, and everyone else like they they were aghast until he just burst into hysterics and then everyone, you know, r- relaxed and we had a good day. So I, I am intrigued by the fact that you were a stand-up comic and obviously you, you brought the humor to the business right from the start. I yeah. thought, I think about somebody like Jerry Seinfeld. I, I like living in a country in a world where a guy like him could basically be a billionaire. I look up his net worth on Google and it seems like he always keeps it just below a billion. <laughs> he wouldn't want to be considered a billionaire. He might have a billion dollars worth of Porsches. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, and then you look at a guy like Zelensky in Ukraine, I guess, it's to do comedy. And now look yeah. what he's doing. Yeah. I think there's something to the ability to kill in a room full of people <laughs> with your own on-the-fly remarks with critical thinking and creative energy and just that. To be able to succeed as a comic, just be able to get up there one time and do it, I think is amazing. Somehow you, you did that as a career for a while. Yeah, that was my day job for 10, 11 years. The thing about doing comedy is you basically learn to be able or willing to face anything that comes at you. And um, and you tend to do best under pressure. Uh, And that shows up in different ways. Although I will say watching Zelensky, it's like he boy, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And he he gives comics a good name like no one ever has. Um, So. Yeah, it, it is a weird perspective. I mean, the thing about comedy is there's nothing that's off limits. There's no, there's nothing you can't make a joke about. Granted, a lot of those things only happen among other comics where no one else can hear us. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when you have that sort of mindset that there's something funny everywhere, um, <laughs> comes it comes in handy sometimes. So yeah. anyway, so back to back to this whole transition from for you for the win. So you got over dealing with this thyroid cancer. And got this idea of, okay, so we're going to start running. Now, had you been doing any running prior to this? You know, I did zero sports in high school. Well, kind of considered myself, I've got two younger brothers who were fantastic, popular guys in high school, great athletes, state records, and so forth. And I didn't do any of that. So I kind of thought I didn't get the athletic gene. I was kind of the black sheep. But I, I just didn't realize it was, the, it was there and running was my superpower. I just didn't know it. So after college i started doing a little bit of running and i got to the point where i had done like a, I was doing international distance triathlons the shorter mini triathlons and i think i ran maybe a half marathon so i, I experimented with some athleticism in my early to late 20s and then you know i got into my job and my hobby on the side was kind of building and remodeling houses selling them, renting out rooms. I kind of did real estate as a hobby and got super busy with my job. Basically, I ended up kind of getting getting married, having kids, got overweight, stressed out, and, and all that, and let my health go. Right. And then, so, you know, having um, an appendix go bad and sky-high cholesterol, I had all these warning signs. I wasn't listening to them. Um, the, my body was trying to tell me for years I needed to make serious changes. I didn't really listen until I really felt like I had a gun to my head with this uh, follicular thyroid cancer. It was an aggressive yeah. uh, cancer. And I had just had a full physical just a few months before it was discovered. And the, when I went to see my doctor, uh, my grandfather had just passed away. He was almost 96 and I was the oldest grandchild. So I got a said a few words. Public speaking was not my thing. And I <laughs> struggled with, and it wasn't just the nerves, something else was going on. And so I got back from home from Wisconsin to Ohio and I see my doctor thinking I've got a, a, a sinus infection and which were common for me back then. And, um, she says, you know, you've got this big lump right here. You haven't noticed that? And I'm like, well, you just checked me out. I was naked. <laughs> you, you did the- <laughs> well, she was distracted because you were naked. <laughs> yeah, she did. She checked everything. And she just noticed <laughs> it. And, um, you know, so it was a fast-growing goiter. And yeah. uh, so that really finally got my attention. I felt like my – I've always felt like I was just a lucky person. And things were going my way overall most of the time. And all of a sudden, bam. 
It was like it just hit pretty hard. So I, I started just diving in, trying to research what was what. And well, how'd you, well then how did you stumble on Born to Run? Everything was kind of leaning that way. I started learning right after I had the cancer. First of all, the doctor, the surgeon said something that made absolutely no sense. I, I Generally, it's women who get thyroid cancer, and it's usually older people who are older and female. And um, so I asked him, you know, how does this, where does this come from? I'm a relatively young, healthy guy. And um, he just said, you know, for all we know, it falls out of the sky. And I just thought, come on, that's a total bullshit answer. I, I want the truth, you know. Yeah. I was starting to see it become a truth seeker. And um, I started learning things like um, things that weren't quite making sense. Like um, when you go towards the equator where there's way more sunlight on people's skin and cancer rates are lower. You get up into Canada where there's less sunlight, higher cancer rates. Uh, so I started putting together, well, one of the, the one medicine I have to take to stay alive is the Synthroid to replace with right. the thyroid. So uh, I see a doctor for that every six months to monitor that. And um, one of the risks of taking Synthroid long-term is osteoporosis. So I was interested in how do I minimize cancer risk and how do I minimize osteoporosis risk? And as I started learning about osteoporosis, I found out that animal-sourced foods mess with our body chemistry in such a way that it's now illegal for the dairy industry to say that milk builds strong bones because it's a complete lie. Mm. And or as we take in more and more animal sourced foods, it essentially leaches calcium uh, minerals from the bones. It weakens them. So it's, it's completely opposite of what they used to advertise. Milk destroys the bones if you drink a lot of it. <laughs> and it, I don't know that it matters if it's meat, dairy or eggs, but the consumption of certain foods messes with your, um, oh, I can't think of the, the terminology right now. Your blood chemistry has to remain at a certain level. And if that's, your diet pushes too high, you, you're either going to die or your body leaches nutrients from the bones. So essentially, uh, what I was learning was that if your diet's not great, you're essentially kind of pissing your skeleton into the toilet over time, literally. Um, so I started learning these things and all of a sudden I'm starting to think my diet, maybe it doesn't make any sense. Maybe everything I learned was mostly wrong. And um, so I was already sort of leaning towards, you know, I had given up dairy. I was thinking more about vegetarian, vegan diet. And um, I had done a 10 day master cleanse fast because I also knew that my weight was an issue. I'd finally got down into my healthy BMI range by doing a 10 day water fast. And you mentioned um, clearing your stomach. Uh, a salt water flush will do that really, really well. <laughs> yes, uh, it will. Salt water flush was part of my um, 10 day master cleanse fast. So, anyways, I started doing, doing these different experiments and losing weight. So, started doing some running back and forth, our private lane out to the mailbox. It was two tenths of a mile each way. So, I'm home with three kids and I would run around the house and yard and out the lane and uh, slowly building up to become a runner again. And uh, in 09, I ran my first marathon, U.S. Air Force Marathon here locally, and um, barely crossed the finish line, hobbling on one leg. And so super excited, and I finished, but I was in a lot of pain. And then read Born to Run. And um, in the meantime there, I had fractured uh, my ankle, broke um, the tibia, just messing around in the yard. I think that was 07 or it must have been, it was 08. Um, and I'd never had a broken bone. So I'm thinking... There were all these different things, and I was realizing that my feet and ankles were really weak. Because when I'd run with my overbuilt shoes with the inserts, I was often twisting my ankles and messing around out in the yard. I snapped my ankle and had to pretty much crawl back to the house and go get, you know, go get it uh, a cast put on it. Um, so one day, uh, it would have been early 2010. I was going out to buy one of those um, basu ball, not a boss, like a basu balls. Yep, so uh, like the upside down half ball. Flat one that you stand yep. on, yes, round, yep. round rubber ball. And um, and then I, I went out to this place called Xenia Shoe and Leather that sells. You can go there to have your horse saddle rebuilt or to have your Birkenstocks resold, um, but they also sold. Um, 
nice leather shoes and work boots and so forth. It was a leather shop. And the guy there was an expert on orthotics. But all of a sudden, on this particular day, when I just happened to be looking for ways to strengthen my ankles, um, he's got a copy of Born to Run, and he's got <laughs> the toe shoes, the... Um, Five fingers. The Vibram Five Fingers, yeah. And um, so I pick up the book, and I'm reading this thing, and... Luckily, the orthotics expert, the owner of the store, was busy that day. So I, I, got, three, I got two, three chapters in, and I was completely intrigued. I went straight to the bookstore to buy my own copy after that. But anyways, he sold me a pair of Vibram Five Fingers, and pretty much by accident, I had the book in hand, and it was a life changer. All of a sudden, all of these things I've been learning for years, Christopher McDougall put it all together. He just yeah. connected all the dots and sold it to me in such a way that and ultimately, I contacted one of the pe- people he featured was uh, Dr. Ruth Heydrich, who was a, a stage four cancer survivor who used a plant-based diet to heal herself like decades ago, and she's still going strong. Yeah. She swims, bikes, runs. She's written five or six books. And anyway, she, she, I picked her brain, and she finally got me 100% convinced to give up the meat and the eggs. I'd already given up the dairy, and so boom, it was 100% game changer within three months i was finally off the cholesterol meds and then it was just a couple months after that the first 50k uh, trail race well so pause there i want to i want to get to the that 50k but i I gotta stop and highlight something that you said that i love the number of times that i've been in some like a doctor's office or physical therapist's office where they have a copy of born to run and everyone is wearing some big, thick, stiff, padded motion control shoe or yeah. and, and recommending orthotics. And it's like, which part of this did you not read? Because you seem, you know, you seem to be missing the point. And of course, um, in my life, look, I'm going to piss some people off. But again, it's a joke. So if you get offended by what I say, not you, Randy, but other people listening, if you're offended by what I say, just know that it's a joke. Um, I think orthotics expert is sort of like saying astrology expert. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was fascinating to me was that this guy was a certified orthotics guy and he sold the stuff right there, but yet he was selling now the complete right. opposite. Right. And how ironic that I figured it all, all out in his shop. And it's like, no, yeah, it's, it's, it's priceless. But I mean, like I had a guy, I, I uh, when I got back into sprinting, I saw um, someone who said, oh, well, you need to be wearing like this three quarter orthotic to deal with the issues that you're having. I said, but I'm a sprinter. I'm always like on the ball of my foot. I would never actually use the orthotic. It never would come in contact with the ground. And he was like, yeah, but uh, what a... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was just, again, it was just like, I guess our theme is going to be knee-jerk reactions. It's just this knee-jerk response. Like people come in and if all you have is an orthotic for your hammer, everything is a nail that needs the orthotic. So, um, so that was interesting. So anyway, that's just a bit of an aside, but tier 50K. So you had this unbelievably unpleasant experience running a marathon. What in God's name made you think, let's run more? Born to Run just inspired me. All the different stories I thought whatever they're drank and I wanted a taste of that. <laughs> and so I don't even know if I'd seriously considered doing a hundred mile at that point. I just knew that I wanted to get up to the ultra distance and see what happened. And um, now ironically, I overtrained. I was doing one day, I did a four day workout. I ran eight miles, four different times in one day. And so about, it would have been five days before the 50K, I went out with my wife's run group, did five, six miles. And on the way back to the house, out of the blue, it felt like somebody had hit me in the ankle with a baseball bat. And I thought, oh, well, I guess I better stay off it and just rest till the race. So I get out there, I'm running. It's, it's aching a little bit, but it's not too bad, but it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I ran pretty well, but I got real slow at the end because the ankle was hurting. It was throwing my stride off. And after the race was over, I could barely walk back to my car. A long story short, it was a stress fracture in the fibia, a right side, same as the same ankle that I broke the tibia in three years prior. So that ended up becoming another serendipitous thing in a way because I learned so much uh, during the healing process of getting that bone fixed. I figured out that riding 120 miles on my bike or or swimming a couple miles were great exercise. I could do that with the stress fracture, but it didn't replace what I got from ultra running, the feeling I got from it. It it wasn't the same. So that kind of got me 
even more focused on the running long term. So uh, anyways, healed up from that stress fracture and just kept going hardcore. Uh, no injury since then. So basically over 80 official ultra marathons, probably more like at least 100 ultra distance runs. But Randy, that can't be possible running is hard on your joints and it's bad for you. And, you know, 50% yeah. of runners and 80% of marathoners get injured every year. So that yeah. can't be, that's not, there's no way you're not injured for all that time, he says. Right. Yeah. And then, and tip it, what I've read in the ultra running magazine is that, um, the average amount of time ultra runners are into it is about three and a half years. And so now I'm going on whatever, 12 nonstop, just, you know, I haven't spent any money on, um, medical stuff related to my hobby. So it means I can just keep running more and more and more races. And <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I, I just never would have dreamt as an 18 year old that, um, I'd be running hundred mile races at age 60. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, we, one of our first employees was 65 at the time and he, he was just running in our first sandal, our do it yourself kit, just, you know, a four millimeter piece of rubber underneath his feet. And he was doing about 120 to 140 miles like that. He was doing 120 to 140 miles an hour, 40 miles a week. So he'd run from his house to the bus station in Denver, take the bus to and get off in Boulder, like a couple stops early and run to our office, then repeat, you know, reverse that on the way home, then go out for five or 10 miles with his dog. And then on the weekends, he'd do 20 or 30 miles a day. And, and people say, well, that's not possible. He's like, well, I've been doing it for years. So I don't know what you're saying. Um, and same thing. I mean, and on the other end of the spectrum as a sprinter, I haven't really had anything other than like a minor tweak that put me out for one workout in 13 years. That's awesome. Did you see, I, I'm remodeling here. You, you might love what I've done with the place. Yes. For people who can't see, uh, Randy is showing off his um, collection of zero shoes and many other things. So, well, but the wall, I painted oh, the wall. Oh my gosh. I love it. That is great. Wait, fun. So, <laughs> fun. I love it. Fun. That's what you're doing with your uh, fun. That's what I do with my ultra distance. So uh, for people, for people who haven't done an ultra, um, what would you say to someone who either is considering it or someone who thinks there's just no way? I would say that running, for me, running is really just an expression of what we are at our core. I like to say uh, running 100 miles, some of my runs have been really tough mountain runs with all kinds of string crossings and rock gardens and just crazy stuff to go through, lots of elevation change. So some of the runs have taken over 37 hours, but I just only half jokingly, I say, hey, it's like a, a 37 hour full body massage. I mean, I just, to me, a lot of ultra runners really like to kind of sensationalize the, the pain and the um, badassery of it. And I'm kind of like the exact opposite. I'm like, no, it's like, um, it's like a really long yoga session. You know, the world's going to spin all the way around. I'm going to see sunrise, sunset, maybe a lot more than one uh, of those of each. And um, it's kind of, um, it's almost kind of a spiritual thing, sort of transformative. It's um, sort of a form maybe of enlightenment. Maybe I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but I, I can tell you that maybe one out of three hundred mile races, I really am strongest the last 10, 20 miles. Wow. So the first 60 to 80 miles is just setting the table. So by then you've run all the way through the night. You've had to conquer the, being sleepy and master the nutrition and the hydration and some caffeine management and all these different things, all the gear, everything. There's a lot to think about. It's a big, it's a puzzle to, to it's like, a, it's mostly about strategy and conditioning, um, but it's, it's a big puzzle to solve. And you're going to learn a lot about yourself. One of the odd things was when I was getting prepared for that first hundred miler, uh, I went no pacer, no crew to a race. I didn't know anybody that was over 300 miles away, you know, and um, I had my daughter put some music on a little device. It was, it was, it was like a knockoff of an Apple or whatever. And I put all my favorite songs on there and I had the batter i had all of the gear and i got it out there and i was i never used it <laughs> and i never have i've never used music for any of these ultras i love it when it's there but i don't i've never played it and so oh, i learned that um just to be tuned into the sound of your footsteps the breath the heartbeat the, all the chi running focuses that danny dreyer teaches uh to, just to um and to be tuned into the other runners, the environment, the animals, the, all the volunteers, just everything that, that's going on is just staying aware of that is a treat. 
and no. I wouldn't mess it up with jamming something in my ears and being distracted from all of the basics. Um, so, so you did that first one without a crew. When you're doing a hundred miler now, what do you do to prepare and navigate and manage that? Uh, basically the same thing. After that first one, I did a video called um, 10 Tips for an Easy 100 Miler. And it's it was all just kind of timeless stuff and it's still the same stuff I do. I use some of Eric Orton's ideas. I know you've gotten to know him well, yeah. uh, the Hawk. And uh, he's a more competitive minded, I'd say, than Danny Dreyer is more of a Zen minded, injury free focused runner, but they both are phenomenal teachers. And um, Eric would say a couple things from his book, The Cool Impossible. Have you read that? Yeah. Okay. He talks about athleticism being all about awareness which is 100% true. He also says that most runners have absolutely no idea of what they're doing, which is kind of true too. So I don't know where I was going with all that, but. Um, well, the, the, it was inspired by my question, what's sort of changed and how you manage a race from that first 100 miler to the way you do it now? Yeah, it's just um, focusing on all the basics. I tried to, one of the magic things that happened at the first race was the first 100 miler. I got dehydrated. I had to recover from that. But once I got to 50 miles in and everything was still working, and I'm actually trying to help some other people who had really bad, like, um, blisters and things, and I'm showing them my socks and my sandals and my thin socks and body glide for the feet and all these different, giving them tips. Like, I've never done one. I'm trying to help other people. And um, anyways, after getting through all that, the sun started, came down, it cooled down, uh, got food and liquid in me, and then some caffeine. <laughs> Coffee came out, and I had some, some uh, caffeine. And um, I found myself just singing in the woods, running, and just this blissful, joyful runner's high hit. It went on for hours and hours and hours. So, uh, 2 a.m., whatever time it was, I come into an aid station just hooting and hollering, and, uh, and they thought I was, like, on something. I was so – it was purely 100% natural runner's high. I, I was just giddy. I felt guilty because some people were just crashing and burning, you know, and, and at the, um, I, I told the volunteers at this aid station, I still am in contact with some of these people. I've gone back and done that same race seven times. And um, I said, man, if I, could, if I could bottle up this feeling and sell it to people, I would be a billionaire. <laughs> and uh, so anyways, I, first hundred mile race, I, I felt like I just caught this wave and I've just wanted to keep riding it ever since. And um, I think I'm still chasing. I virtually always get a runner's high at a hundred miler, but I've never had the intensity and length repeat again quite the same way as it did at the first time i'm not a drug taker but it's but there are various other things where i've had similar experiences i, I think it's just a neurological phenomenon the first time it happens you're you've laid down some massive new neural pathway your neurotransmitters are doing something they've never done before but once you have yeah. that pathway everything smooths out a little bit so i mean i'll say it even now backing up to the beginning of our conversation the i can't think of a better word that i currently use other than the preciousness that i feel on a daily basis it was intense for the first month. Now it's just, you know, it, it's it's still delightful, but it's smoother. it's just smoother. I think um, when I think back on the cancer, I, I tell people when I'm doing a hundred mile race or anything, anytime I run, I think of every breath, every footstep that is a form of gratitude. And mm. the rarer they run for, for their ancestors on the sacred ground, I, I try to bring it out all those ideas into my running and Danny Dreyer teaches about just trying to, and to absorb the chi in the air, bring in all the energy from the nature, the trees, the animals, the people, the volunteers, the runners, everything. And just trying to, I'd say one of my favorite mantras is um, energy flows where attention goes. Wherever I focus my energy, I get, that's, you know, wherever I focus my attention, that's where the energy is coming from. Um, so, you know, one of my my youngest brother was a kind of a wild man, still is, back in high school, college. I, um, he had this thing where back when he was driving a dump truck for an excavator, he'd be out in the morning all the time driving country roads. And he learned that he found a, a fresh skunk kill in the road. He would just take a deep breath and he would just learn to love the smell of skunk. So I like <laughs> Whenever something's going badly, I flip it. And I, I, I quickly learned that when I found skunk, I would, oh, I love it. It smells like perfume. I changed that narrow pathway to a, a pleasure thing. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so that 
same thing comes into play and say you're 40 miles into an ultra marathon it's colder than expected it's raining for hours and hours and hours and instead of whining about it you just say over and over until you finally believe it i love the rain <laughs> i love all of this bring it on bring me more <laughs> and then after a while you start laughing about it and then you believe it and that's and, like just well, embrace it after after Tiananmen Square, um, to abbreviate the story, I ended up in Thailand and I got there just as the monsoons were kicking in and there was just no way to escape the rain. And so when there's no escape, you just go with it. I mean, you can argue if you want, but I my experience was it was like, oh, and I, I previously did not like being out in the rain and getting wet. But when there was just no escape for whatever reason, I started really enjoying it. And now when it's raining, I get a total kick out of it. I love to go out and run in the rain or the snow. Some of the best. The negative ions from the rain, you mm. probably are aware of that. Yep. Okay. I guess that's a real thing. I, uh, you know, well, I don't know. I mean, the, uh, apparently, well, certainly, I don't know how much of it is the rain versus what happens with when there's a thunderstorm, which actually does ionize the air in different ways. There's a lot of things that while something may be happening, it may not be what people think. But to your point, if you you know how you frame it is going to change yeah, how yeah. you experience it. I like things like that. The believing in them, earthing. I think there's probably something to it. I don't know how solid the science is. Okay, I'll, ju- I'll jump in on that one. Ready? So the and the idea being that there's these magic free electrons. Actually, the idea, simple idea being that because we're not electrically connected to the ground on a regular basis, like our ancestors seemingly were, um, that's leading to a bunch of health problems. I won't get, dive into the story too much other than if you know anything about physics, chemistry, or biology, it all falls apart. But um, And people may argue with me, that's okay. Um, but let's just go for the simpler story. So I like to say, we sugar doesn't taste sweet. Sugar doesn't taste good. What I mean by that is that we evolved to like the taste of sugar because it gave us something that we needed then, which was hard to find, called calories. And so we co-evolved. And then and then once we started figuring out how to cultivate things, we made things sugarier because we need the calories. So in a similar vein, um, we know that just being out in nature actually is stress relieving. And relieving stress is a valuable thing. It's a neurological, neurophysiological thing. So being barefoot, for most people, when they're, quote, electrically connected to the ground, they're barefoot in somewhere that's natural. And so, yeah. and, and because we have all these nerve endings in our feet, um, that's to let us know what we're stepping on or stepping in. So there's no question that we evolved to learn that certain sensations are a good sign. There's something nearby that we want, food, water, shelter, someone to sleep with, something. And so walking around, you don't need any of the magical, you know, physics, chemistry, biology story. You just go, oh, we evolved to like that feeling. It, If nothing else, if you haven't been stimulating your feet by letting them feel these very varied and variegated surfaces, your brain is wired to feel that. And when you let your brain feel that, that feels good. And feeling good is not just an emotional experience. It's a neurophysiological phenomenon that is stress relieving, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah. in my mind, that's the Occam's razor answer, the simple story. We yeah. have to like that. You don't need anything on top of that that is improperly verified by seeming science. And just for the yeah. I'll stop ranting about this one thing. People like to demonstrate this by showing, hey, here I am. I put uh, I put a, an ometer on my skin and that shows that I've got a positive charge on my skin. And that, that's got to be bad. It's like, no, 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 no. That's protecting you. And the simple proof on that for that is a um, 99.5% of people who get struck by lightning survive without a problem. 100% of trees that get struck by lightning explode and burst into flames because your skin is highly resistant to being be to electrical current. So it, the current goes around your body, through your skin, around you into the ground. Similarly, if it was just about being grounded, being hyperprotective, then people in the third world and all of our pets should be totally healthy. But that's not the way that works either. So, you know, yeah. anyway, that's my counterfactual, simpler answer. But but that said, look, if it gets you out and you're having fun, I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah. I don't think there's any downside to practicing it. It feels good to be out in the grass and having skin on the ground. It just absolutely. I, just, I spend an inordinate amount of time barefoot. I'm all for it. The uh, The challenge becomes when people are selling additional products to yeah. facilitate this. And the evidence that they have for the benefit is, again, at best, very dubious. And that's yeah. at best. Yeah. 
I mean, look, um, my whole thing is zero shoes. Part of what animates me is that I find it morally reprehensible when people make a living by lying to other people. And that's what the footwear industry has been doing for 50 years. So, yeah, yeah. so when, you know, when people are selling products based on bad scientific ideas that are easily disproven, um, yeah, that just gets under my skin. Well, and that's kind of summarizes most of the food industry. <laughs> and I, you I know, found it's very similar what the food industry is doing to people as, as the shoe industry does to people. Well, the, the slight difference there is food is a really interesting one uh, because like I was at one of the first paleo conferences and I noticed a few things that no one else seemed to point out that there was 10 people on the stage who were the paleo experts of the time arguing about what paleo was. And, and so they didn't have it. They didn't agree on what paleo was the whole idea that paleo people didn't eat any grains and didn't eat any, whatever else they were saying has been proven to be not true over and over and over. Um, right. And five, five of the people that were on that stage were morbidly obese. Um, <laughs> And what I found out later was that almost everyone on the stage had high C-reactive protein levels. So there was just a lot of, and I said to one of the doctors, I said, this idea that there's one diet for everyone, that seems a little silly because like I'm a genetic freak. And the guy says, what are you talking about? I said, oh, for men over, then I was 45 or 47 or I don't know, somewhere 13 years ago. So I was 47. I said, for men over the age of 45, I'm one of the fastest Jews in the world. (laughs) So- you're going to suggest that I should be eating the same thing as someone who can't run fast and, you know, lifts just does totally different activities. It doesn't make yeah. sense. So, and, and the last thing I'll, I'll say about the diet thing, there's a, a writer named Denise Minger who wrote a book called death by food pyramid that you would actually love. Cause it's really about how the food industry has been misrepresenting things, but later, and, and Denise was the bell of the paleo ball because she was a diehard raw food vegan in high school. And then her teeth started loosening and almost falling out. And she went, Ooh, let me do something about that. And then started eating a lot of animal protein, which helped not. And she still predominantly eats a lot of vegetarian vegan things, but adds yeah. animal protein. But um, later she, uh, she did something about the paleo world that most people wouldn't do is she started looking for counterfactuals. Let's see if there are people doing the opposite of what you're saying, who are just as healthy, if not healthier than what you're claiming to be and found innumerable examples of that. And, and lately, and this is the last thought she did a long, uh, she did a great article about high fat versus low fat diets and what they might be doing. But then she said, I'm not going to be writing any more about diet. And I don't know why, but my suspicion, because she's a very smart researcher, is that she couldn't find any correlation that applied across the board to that correlated diet and longevity. And I think she's, you know, landed on the different strokes for different folks uh, bandwagon. And so, you know, because look, you know this as well as I, if you want to start a fight, you either talk about politics or talk about whatever diet you happen to be on. Religion, food, politics. I look at them as all about the rules we're all going to live by. Politics, yeah. economics, religion, and food kind of falls into that too. It's a, just a tough conversation to have. But there is a lot of evidence to show that a more plant-based diet leads to no question. Longer, longer. I mean, that's, you know. Yeah, the, um, the, difference, the difference is um, – um, having a higher plant-based diet seems to be very, very clear because uh, that's basically what a Mediterranean diet is, just adding some seafood mostly. And um, but but, you know, what's what's interesting is when people who have discovered something that seems to work for them, at least for now, you know, just getting really militant about it and assuming that what works for them works for everybody else. That's where yeah. things gets to be problematic. Exactly. exactly. Um, I, I looked up something. I've been watching a few of your I watch them on YouTube, your podcast. Um, do, you, do you know the name Walter Leisner? No. You don't. No. You he was a 95, 94 years and 268 days old when he did a backflip, oldest known human. Oh, man. Life. Okay. <laughs> All right. I heard you talk about it on one of your former podcasts. I decided to look it up. And I thought, I wonder... Steve, uh, boy, you have just set the bar for me. Um, I um, I think I've already beaten my coach, my former coach. Um, but now, okay. So first, I've got to live to ninety six, and then I got to throw a standing back. Wait, hold on, standing backflip or like on a trampoline? I didn't look that up. I assumed it was a standing backflip. I couldn't. Right, you're gonna send, have to send me his info. I'm gonna look yeah, that I up. I just googled it, and I, his name popped up as the oldest human to ever do a backflip. 
I'm I'm going to look. I'm definitely going to look that one up. Um, there's a woman I don't remember her name who's in her 90s who who does gymnastics as well. And um, you know the whole thing about the Masters Track and Field Circuit is that everyone's goal is just to outlive their competitors. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was interesting. If you so, can live to 94 and still do a backflip, that would be. Uh, Again, it's yeah, record for I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm definitely gonna look it up. So uh, let me, I want to wrap this up with, with this. If if you were other than just look the unbelievably inspiring way that you talk about running ultras and running, you know, ultra running has become one of the fastest growing sports that people are doing. Actually, pickleball is now number one, but ultra running, you know, really, really grew dramatically. If you were gonna give someone some advice for doing their first ultra, um, because I can't imagine they're not anxious as hell. And, you know, what would that be? And I'll tell you a, a quick, funny one, um, just as a prelude to that. I was at an event that um, Tony Kropichka was doing and former, very well-known ultramarathoner from that yeah, yeah. early days. And someone said to him, you know, I've run a 50 mile race, but I want to run a hundred. What do I need to do to train for that? And Tony's answer was nothing. You've already done everything you need to know. So, he inspired me to do my first hundred too. Oh, really? He had his YouTube videos. I watch him back in 2010, 2011. He'd be in the park running barefoot, or he'd take off his shoes and he'd have a knife and cut the bottom off and make them flat. Yeah. And, and basically, him and others were saying the same thing. If you can run a marathon, you can run 50. And if you can run 50, you can run 100. Now, a lot of people I know are running 200 milers. Oh, um, I don't have any interest in that personally because I've found that to run a 200 miler might cost two, three, four, five times as much as a hundred miler. Right. So for my dollar, um, my traveling dollar and my racing dollar, I can see more places, meet more runners, experience more things by doing hundred mile races than 200 mile races. So, um, so, but, so someone says so gearing up for that for, first ultra. I've pointed to my wall right here. Keep it fun. Uh, keep it fun. And if you're keeping it fun, this is, I know you preach the same thing. If you keep it fun, you're going to do it. And, um, I've always kept my ultra. It was mostly fun. I still get nervous even before a 50K. I've never DNF'd at a 50K. Right. And so um, I don't want to start <laughs> a new trend there. So I, well, uh, you know, okay, it, it occurs to me for keep it fun. There's a, this is going to be a weird analogy. <clears throat> so I'm a 17 or 18 time member of the polar bear club. So on January 1st, they break out the ice. If there's any ice oh, and you're diving into 32 degree yeah, water. I've never done it. I can't imagine it. Oh, it's a blast. But here, but here's the thing. But here, no, no, here's the thing. If you going into a race, if you think it's going to be difficult, if you think it's going to be painful, if you don't have that open-minded kind of curiosity where you can see how can I keep it fun, then that's going to be problematic. It's the same thing with jumping into ice water. Um, if, you, if you're just curious, if you're willing to kind of, you know, feel it without your expectation of what it's supposed to feel like, it will undeniably be way different than what you thought. And right. in very interesting ways. And so I never yeah. thought of it, you know, as as being analogous to running a 50K or a 50 mile or 100 mile. But but I'm going to, you know, ask you, it's like, if you go in with that, like, I'm just curious, because it may not be like what I imagine or what anyone told me or what anyone else who's done this has said, you know, let's see what happens and see if I can find a way to be fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of amazed. I haven't gotten bored with it at all. I don't see any end to doing it. I just want to keep keep in shape to be able to keep doing this. Hopefully the hundred mile does. I, I'd like to be back on here when I'm 70, still doing hundred milers. We'll see. But we'll talk. doing 50 Ks when I'm 70 or 80. It, um, it, no, it's my same thing. I just, you know, I don't, I know I'm not going to be the fastest guy in the world. I know I'm not going to make it into a finals in the world championships. I might make it into a quarter or a semi if it's a really good day and there's not a lot of people there, but yeah. you know, uh, my only goal is to keep hitting all American times in my races as I get older. And if I'm really feeling good to hit an all American time for the age group behind mine, one behind mine, if I can do that, I'm totally happy. And if I can't do that, but I'm still having a good time out there, that's okay too. You know, I, I was fortunate to be at the Barkley marathons last year. At oh, wow. And second time I saw Courtney DeWalter, who was just a joyous runner. She was just, always smiling and happy, just like you see her on the internet. Um, and then I've been to the Big Dog Backyard Ultra at Lazarus Lake, Gary Cantrell's house uh, the last two years as a volunteer, of course. <laughs> I'm not there to compete. Um, but when this past October, 
when the U.S. team was competing with all the teams around the world in the backyard format, one of the guys came in and he was just completely spent. He was in a lot of pain, but he went as far as he could until he just couldn't go any further. And the guy was, this competitor was telling uh, Laz, you know, this is it. I'm never coming back. You know, it was just not fun. And Lazarus said, uh, you don't have to have fun to have fun. And that kind of... <laughs> Kind of summed up ultra running you know you just have to f- flip it you, you persist through there's a um i like to think of it well seinfeld had this great definition of pain uh it's a lot of information coming at you really fast <laughs> a perfect definition of pain but when it comes to pain when you're doing an ultra race and you're trying to do your best performance you can in terms of your best pace whatever you're dancing on a line between productive discomfort, which is a form of pain versus a real injury, which mm. is a setback sort of pain. Mm. You have to kind of dance on that line, uh, whether it's a 50K or whatever. You, you have to be uh, following Eric Orton's awareness concept. It, you have to be aware enough to dance on that line without pushing too far into injurious pain versus yeah. productive productive discomfort. Well, um, and I imagine, I mean, if we think about Tim Noakes and his central governor theory, which uh, basically is that your brain, one of its major functions is to keep you safe and will pull you back from exerting yourself in various ways or being having certain experiences because it thinks it's unsafe, but it's often a little hyper conservative. And I imagine that over time, that line that you're dancing between uh, uh, um, useful discomfort and uh, actual problematic pain moves somewhat. Yes. Not to not to make you not to put you in a situation where injury is more likely, but just because you're discovering that oh no no that line was actually in the wrong place and you can it can move. Uh, your condition changes so you can handle what. Uh, Right. Tougher one. Uh, well, Danny Dreyer, uh, one of the things he likes to coach is uh, relaxing into the competitive run and, and getting yourself out of the way, which is kind of the same thing. You've got to relax the mind and the body and, and just go with the flow. And then you get into a different zone where you, you can, the mind and the body relax into it. You, you can perform better. I, I, I'm compelled to throw out this story. So um, when I was living in New York, I was doing uh, Tai Chi and Aikido. And um, after an Aikido class, a bunch of us left, including the teacher. Um, and it's a blisteringly cold, like February day in New York. It had snowed. It was, you know, still a little, a little drizzlier flurries. And um, and uh, everyone was complaining about how cold it was. And I said, as we're walking to the subway, I said, um, you know, I try to just pay attention to the sensations and just feel those without adding a story to it. Because when I do that, then everything changes and it doesn't feel quite so like cold. And then the teacher says, yeah, I did that Zen shit for 40 years. It's fucking freezing out here. <laughs> That's funny. But they say that people who do the uh, um, diving into the cold water and all that, yeah. if you supposedly, if you do deep, slow breaths, it, that it can part heat into your mitochondria or whatever it sends more heat into the body to keep keep you warmer or something happens yeah no there's there's i mean i I tell that story not to suggest that hey we're wrong and uh no you know if when it hurts it hurts but um it's just uh that there there are different ways of experiencing these things however you want to play with it and and playing with it is is the critical thing i mean i've got a cold plunge we have a hot tub i've got a cold plunge next to it um yesterday i had to chip away eight inches of ice to get into it and i did not stay in as long um but once you're in it's just again it's just not what you think and if you're willing yeah. to play with the experience it can be very interesting uh, i might have to try it sometime I, I i like a hot tub <laughs> I, hey i love a hot tub but yeah. i also but i also just find it, it it and it's not like it's pleasant pleasant but it's just really it's just really compelling i really i i get a kick out of it anyway we'll do that sometime you come out here we'll jump in the cold plunge sounds good <laughs> so randy first of all thank you for everything first of all thank you for doing this thank you for all yeah. the support you've given My us over years. um it's yeah. been a real real treat if people want to find out more about what you're up to and follow you or maybe even get in touch with you to to for whatever reason they might want to do that um, i don't know if you're doing anything coaching ish or whatever how might they get in touch with you yeah, most of what I do is still just volunteer stuff. I'm um, 
trying to get our house fixed up and sold and downsized, and hopefully then we'll have more time to do other things. But I'm, I'm on YouTube, so just everything's under my name. So a Google search will take me to you, take them to YouTube. So well, so, so spell, then spell your name for people. R-A-N-D-Y. K-R-E-I-L-L, so mm-hmm. Randy Kryle. Um, and on YouTube, you can uh, get a link to the blog. Um, I'm on Facebook quite a bit, so I'm easy to find there or on YouTube, and a little bit on Instagram too. So um, I'm easy to find and always glad to help people who are willing to listen. Um, so, yeah. Perfect. Well, once again, Randy, thank you, thank you, thank you. And for everyone else... And thank you all for being here as well. Again, a reminder, when you get a chance, head over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the previous episodes, ways you can engage with us on social media. Um, You'll find us wherever podcasts are findable and wherever you can, you know, give us a thumbs up and a five-star review and hit the like button and hit the bell icon on YouTube. And like I said, if you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe, spread the word. And if you have any recommendations or requests or uh, you want to argue with me about something. If you think I've got a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, I'm open to that conversation. Uh, just drop me an email about anything. Move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. And until then, just go out, have fun, and live life feet first.